It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to the newest episode of Crazy and the King. Torn, are you with us? I absolutely am, Julie. It's been a few uh, weeks since we chatted. You've been on the move. I think the last place you were was in Banff, right? Yeah, I just went from Banff, Canada to Austin today, actually. But Banff, I was at a conference called the Cult Gathering. And it was a branding and marketing conference that was so completely kick-ass. I felt like I probably got more out of that conference than I ever have any other in my life. That's a big statement. And you know, every single one of those cult brands, what they talked about, people first, company second, and culture was king. And that, I didn't expect that out of a marketing conference, right? And every single executive we heard for said the same thing. Say that formula one more time. People first. People first, company second. Yeah, absolutely. So good. I'm glad that you enjoyed yourself. I saw a couple of your notes and I know put in a, a quick, you know, three to five minute pod to to kind of recap. I know you talked about two of the brands that excited you the most. I'm sure all of them were equally as thrilling, but good job there. Let me tell you, I am extremely satisfied and happy because this concept of Crazy and the King by the beloved Chad. You know, it was really just a concept in, in Q4 of last year and, and really it's taken shape. And I absolutely love that. I love that people are listening. Uh, I was reading over some emails that I received after uh, our third episode, second episode, I'm sorry, reading over some e- emails after the second episode, looking at different social media exchanges, just definitely pleased to see that people are paying attention. I want to share with you, uh, Julie, uh, we got a bit more feedback when we did that story a few weeks ago on the uh, principal that dressed up in blackface for Steve Harvey. A parent from that school district actually reached out to me, and to make a you know long story short, uh, I'm pleased to announce that the father, the wife, and other parents in that district made their voices heard, and that's exactly what is required if we are going to change the climate and the progress in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. So I was really, really happy about that. That that definitely, when you told me about that, it just made my day because it reinforces that the parents and and the school has to take action and we can't just sweep it under the rug like like they tried to. Absolutely. Speaking of schools, did you see the... uh, the fifth grade school trip, field trip, picking cotton and singing and laughing. Did you oh see that? Oh my God, I did. It was horrifying. The The song? Down in South Carolina. Can you oh, imagine? No. I, I would freaking lose it if I was their parents. I I, I mean, it's it, it was just one. Of, it, it literally was one of those things that just, I, I, I sat and looked at the video and I just had to sit back and I just, I laughed. And, and then- you know, speaking of that, there were a number of academic stories over the last couple of weeks that have disturbed me, two of them out of New York. You know, uh, one one school, there were a couple of teachers that put some welcome back posters together, or I think this was coming off of uh, winter break or something. But in any event, they put some 
celebratory posters together and they had nooses on them and they called them necklaces. Oh my God. They had actual nooses hanging from the cardboard and they called them necklaces. And then there was another substitute teacher up in New York who said that Martin Luther King committed suicide. So let me just say that as egregious as those two stories are, that's not the one that I'm going to start off with. I'm actually going to start with a different uh, academic story uh, titled When Black Students Are Beaten in School by Black Educators. When Black Students Are Beaten in School by Black Educators. And as, as I said before, I call out all forms of assault, prejudice, racism, uh, because wrong is wrong. And I'm not attacking educators. I'm simply sharing this story because, well, I'll tell you about that after we talk about it. So so this story, Julie, starts with a nine-year-old in a Chicago school. He was actually late for school uh, and his teacher and a friend of the teacher took him to the boy's bathroom to discipline him. And, you know, because a nine-year-old boy actually controls how and when they get to school. That's a whole exactly. Exactly. Oh, oh, absolutely. 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 They they have total control over that. Uh, and so oh. the teacher, the teacher in this Chicago school hands her friend, a friend of hers who is not an administrator, not a teacher, not a para instructor, nothing related to a W-2 contractual position with the school system. The teacher hands her friend a belt and the friend tells the young man to pull his pants down and he refuses. She proceeds to beat him anyway, breaking his skin through his clothes. Two women took a nine-year-old boy into the boy's bathroom. Oh, this, I read this story and it just literally made my blood boil torn. It is the definition of assault and, and just humiliation for this poor child who literally had absolutely no control over the fact that he was late. And corporate punishment is still something that is legal in 18 states. And I want to be fully transparent. When I grew up, that is something that we we received. We would we would receive the paddling from our teacher. And and I'm willing to guess that. Well, let me just speak for my parents. They were okay with this young king grabbing a couple of paddles when he acted out of line. That being said, you know, students are still being hit with wooden boards for minor infractions such as chewing gum, being late to class talking back to the teacher, all kinds of small transgressions, if you will. And for me, the the thing that was alarming is that the top 10 states where paddling or corporal punishment is allowed, it's where there's a large proportion of black children attending schools and they are routinely punished, number one, and that in these 10 states, lynchings occurred in the early 20th century. And so you would ask me, why am I making that connection? Because A, I feel like corporal punishment today is a little bit different than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, almost 45 years ago when I was in elementary and perhaps middle school. So I just feel like it most certainly is not something that we should be practicing in our academic and educational environment. And I think it just really brings all of these stories that you've put together this pod and, and last with the education system when we're downplaying the importance of leaders in a school reflecting good behavior then we have to make sure that those 
smaller, and I'm using air quotes, infractions like blackface are taken care of and dealt with because this is just a progression, right? This is not just something that happens at school. And and the article is so great. I was reading about it, um, being able to really, it sets black kids, especially black boys up for failure when they become adults. And that was the thing that I think stood out to me most in the article. And, and I know this isn't just a kid problem. It's not just a parent problem. Don't you think it's an employer problem too? Well, it is an employer problem. And you went exactly where I was going to go. And I didn't have a chance to, uh, to recount, retrace my steps. But there are some stories that I really wanted to highlight. And I'll do them vocally. Part of the reason why I shared this story is because when you think about how adults across the country responded to the deaths of people like Tamir Rice, you you know, young, 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 young man in Ohio that was shot like three seconds, two, three seconds after uh, the policeman uh, exited the vehicle. It is um, an amazing situation to grow up and to experience what life is like um, as a young black child. And, And again, There are stories that suggest that black women and black children can accept or endure pain more than anyone else. There are all types of articles through the National Journals of Health, Washington Post. You may think recently or you may have heard recently how Serena Williams had to really advocate for her health during the birth of her baby uh, and how the doctors would not listen to her juxtapose that with stories in Washington, D.C. and other cities where Black women could not, did not have the resources or the vocal capacity of a Serena Williams and their doctors ignored their requests and they died on the table. And so what I the reason I bring this story up is, yes, it is a, a workplace issue, but it's a humanity yeah. issue. And and I wanted to make sure that I raised it because I don't want people listening to feel like I'm only picking on any one particular ethnic group or any one gender of person. I feel like as people, we should just do a better job of being able to pivot and switch. And if things are not necessarily working, we should be able to abandon those things and do what is best for humanity. Corporal punishment is something that we should most certainly get rid of in these 10 states. It's something that we should most certainly get rid of. And for that young man right there, I just pray, hope and pray that he does not grow up looking at authority in a way that is not necessarily positive to his. I can't say it any better than that. Right. And it's never going to be okay. Got to start having these conversations because I think this is just news that gets missed in the cycle a lot because so much is happening. And for our audience in particular, who are passionate about diversity and inclusion, a lot of times in their workplace, that translates over to just being more human and being more engaged in our community. And I think y'all need to hear these kind of stories. I know I do, because I need to be reminded of things that need to happen and fights we still have to have. You got it. Let's rock that EEOC. Okay. So this is an interesting one that really, it caught my eye. It's from Forbes and the title is EEOC loses openly gay commissioner. And really that's why it caught my eye. I'm looking for good diversity and inclusion stories for the week. This is really about a a lady named Chai Feldblum and she was a commissioner on the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the EEOC, uh, who's openly lesbian and has, since the end of the year, um, not by her own choice, departed um, the EEOC 
And so my interest was, of course, thinking that we need diverse people driving policy and action at the EEOC. So what a loss this is for the LGBTQ community to have that voice lost. But it actually got a lot bigger than that. And how did it get bigger? Because, again, I would have thought about it the same way that you thought about it. Again, just having that different perspective, helping to shape policy and and how we show up in the workplace. But why? Why was there a bigger piece? Just in case you don't know, the EEOC's primary job is to enforce anti-discrimination employment laws at the federal level. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Equal Pay Act, pregnancy discrimination, the ADA, and age discrimination. The EEOC is run by a five-member commission, which consists of three commissioners, a chair, and a vice chair. And so the commission itself is very important because it creates EEO policies, issues discrimination charges, and then decides when the EEOC will initiate a lawsuit against employer on behalf of an employer employees. Okay, I try not to get too technical, but the, the important part here is, is that when Phil Blum's commission ended on 1231, that left only two EEO commissioners of the required five. With only two positions, there can be no quorum on the decisions that must be made. And this literally brings the the primary agency who enforces federal anti-discrimination regulation to a complete standstill. If they don't have at least three, they can't legally make decisions about how to move forward on policies or charges or lawsuits. And do you have any uh, insight, Julie, on this story as to why uh, those other three positions are empty? I know that, you know, the third came became empty on 1231. Yeah. But why have they been empty? Has it been a lack of uh, appointment, uh, filling the position by who who fills the position anyway? So these are presidential nominees and they're confirmed by the Senate as are hundreds, if not thousands of positions in the federal government um, during each administration. And because the Senate couldn't come to an agreement on the three individuals that were up for nomination, including um, Field Blum, then all three died in the Senate. And so at this point, we have no new nominees and we have no time frame or parameters of when these will be filled. So with no new nominees, all the students, job seekers and employees are left without protection because there's absolutely no opportunity for enforcement at this point. Which goes to show you uh, the importance of con- connecting our presence and our civic responsibility to make sure that we continue to apply pressure on our political officials, both federal and state, and certainly local mun- municipalities, if you will. It's just really, really important that we do not disconnect in the uh, barrage. doesn't matter how you feel. We have a responsibility. And this right here impacts why we are doing the work that we do. And so I appreciate you bringing this story to light because I absolutely had no idea that this was what uh, the situation was. I And I mean, it's almost March and I work in this world every day, as do you. And I had absolutely no idea. Um, none of the major orgs that are communicating with employers or anything that conversation yet. And I'm just floored that I haven't heard about it. Yeah. So, um, Good story. We'll make sure we put the link down below. Um, So for anyone who is listening to the pod, we try to do an incredible job of sharing links that kind of motivate the stories that we refer to. Uh, Every once in a while, we may throw in an additional link or two. So make sure you find the pod on iTunes. Make sure you share it with other people. 
and definitely look at the links and give us your comments. You know, you don't have to see the story the same way that we see the story. Share with us how you feel after you engage with such. Julie, you ever been on the red carpet? Uh, no. No, 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 no. Listen, 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 listen. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. I'm not talking about the house red carpet. I'm not talking about some <laughs> of that stuff, you know, in the hallway when you got real cute, you and Chad are going out for dinner Aww. and you strolling through the hallway. I'm talking that official <laughs> red carpet in California. Have you ever been on such? No, sadly, I have not. Maybe, maybe we'll get there someday. That's right. Now they have I. But let me tell you, uh, because this uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, we had an, a huge award show. You know that there was the whole brouhaha around who was going to host. And, you know, I'm not a TV watcher, but what I have heard on Twitter and, you know, listening to other friends, they said that the show was incredible for the most part, that they did not miss not having a host. But the story that I want to talk about is um, Paramount's chief, uh, Mr. Jim Giannopoulos unveils a diversity initiative. Oh, cool. Okay. And this is so beautiful because it reinforces the position that we share here that DNI has no industry boundary. None. There is no boundary. There is no industry. There is no geography. There is no place that diversity and inclusion are not important. And so his full quote, Julie, was this, to continue to build on our commitment. As part of the development and green light process, our productions will be required to complete a plan designed to enhance access and opportunities for groups historically underrepresented in the media industry. Special attention will be paid to our storylines, our talent in front of and behind the camera, our vendors, and our shooting locations. When I think about Gucci a couple of weeks ago, I just think about intentional statements like this is a step one. And so I applaud and appreciate it. But then now the responsibility is on all of us, especially those that are in this space, to hold him and Paramount accountable. Women have only directed about 4% of the country's top grossing movies over the last decade. That's 10 years. All these incredibly creative women. And you heard him say that the storyline is important. I want to hear women's stories and I don't want to have to turn to Lifetime and that be the only place where I can find them. Yep. Women's stories deserve to be across all of these mediums, all of these platforms. And so I'm really appreciative that he is doing that, making it a part of Paramount's mission. Well, I think these guys are finally realizing that women in front of the camera and women's stories are also kicking ass at the box office. There's a ton of dollars that are coming in on Wonder Woman and great diverse stories. As much as I love these kind of stories, I might be a little too cynical. I want to really see how this pans out for a lot of different groups. I don't know, Torn, if you remember the movie, this came out late last year called The Upside with Brian Cranston. He acted as a quad and there was a lot of pushback on that story or on that movie because there are a lot of, of people who are actually um, have a disability that could have played that role. And so there's always been a big conversation about ableism within Hollywood. And I think this cuts across all the diversity groups. And I, I would love to get a copy of this required diversity enhancement plan. I love that it's required because what gets measured gets done. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm very interested to see if people with disabilities are included, especially women of color with disabilities 
and, and how mental illness is included in that grouping if we're really just talking about race and gender. So you know what? Yeah, that's cool. So, you know, uh, I appreciate you putting that charge out and I'm going to take the lead on that. So I'm going to reach out to their uh, CHRO or whatever they refer to the person as. I'm also going to reach out to the communications team and see if they are in possession and are at liberty to share uh, that diversity enhancement plan. So I'm going to take the lead on that and hopefully I'll have an update for us. Yeah, hopefully I'll have an update when we do our next um, session. Cool. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So we have to end this segment with an Oscar fun fact, right? What is that? Five of the last six winners of Best Director have been from Mexico. Did you know that? Uh, No idea. Yeah, so we're starting to see some diversity wins in that category. I love that. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, that article came from Variety. Uh, We'll make sure that we post it up. So you have one more story, and it's about the big boys. Oh, yeah. And girls and people. It's got some O's and some G's and some L's in it. What are we talking about? I don't know about you, but I love the the change in the world when it comes to companies like Paramount, hopefully, um, yeah. starting to lead the way in diversity and, and really seeing that value. But this final story for this week is about the power of the worker to organize and end unfair practices in their workplace. So this one also came from Forbes. Apparently, I, I really like Forbes this week. It's titled Workers for Google to End Mandatory Arbitration. So it's it's this is awesome. And just a, a hair of background, it starts late last year when the New York Times came out with an expose on several large payday exits from senior Google male staff who'd been accused of sexual harassment. And well, let me just say that pissed off a lot of Google employees to the tune of about 20,000 employees who walked off the job and demanded that Google end their practice of arbitration for sexual harassment complaints. Yeah, baby steps, I guess, right? Um. Uh, So, you know, I smile because, you know, mandatory arbitration is really a function that, to me, it's it's suppressive. Mm -hmm. It doesn't allow me to show up and to, to be able to voice and operate with that transparency that organizations say that they appreciate, that they value, that they embrace. So for you to force me to have to go through some level of arbitration, which oftentimes is skewed to your advantage, to derail why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling, uh, I'm glad that they did away with it. Honestly, this was a really, really good thing. I I would say I've signed at least three or four mandatory arbitration agreements in my employment history. And, you know, the thing is, when you talk about leverage and power to the to the employer, I can't start on day one without signing away my rights as a as a human being, as an American to take action or speak publicly against my employer when we're talking about things like sexual harassment, discrimination, minimum wage, pay disparity, any of those things. Just to go to work, I have to say to my company, I give up my my right to be able to sue you or talk publicly against it. And it gives so much power to these employers. I was looking at a stat, it's less than 2% of arbitrations are found in favor of the employee. Yes. And again, that's just what, that's what I'm saying. It's just, it's the deck is stacked against you. Yeah. 
In November, Google said, okay, no more mandatory arbitration for sexual harassment, but the rest of mandatory arbitration stays in place. A group of those 20,000 decided, no, we're, we're going to become a collective, we're going to stay organized, and we're going to pressure the company to end all mandatory arbitration practices for not just employees, but they were also advocating on behalf of the contracted labor. And hold on for a moment. I just want to be clear because I didn't believe that, that they had that they had mandatory arbitration in place for those that were 1099 or contractual. Did I misunderstand that? So yeah, and more than half of Google's employees, air quotes again, are contract labor. So they have none of the benefits like health insurance, 401k, and they're still required to sign away their rights to be able to work for a vendor or contractually through for Google. And so these are- Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't either. I never even thought about that. And, you know, the things that that I think is really interesting is that the contract labor are going to be lower paying entry level or maybe even just general labor jobs. And they're more likely to be held by people of diverse backgrounds uh, who are more likely to be impacted by discrimination and pay disparity and all of those things. So they're really getting a double whammy of no protection no rights, period, from Google. And so good news, bad news. This week, Google agreed to end this practice for all full-time employees, but has not yet agreed to the same terms for contract labor. When we talk about the power of kind of a major company like Paramount driving change, this is the other side of that story again. And the Google collective now is not stopping. Their mission is to get rid of mandatory arbitration across the country. And they're really moving forward one step at a time. And they're going to continue this fight on behalf of contract labor for Google and then even outside that. And I think that's a big deal because considering the economy that we're in and so many organizations are you know, benefiting from this gig type um, situation and scenario. This is certainly a story that is not going to die out anytime soon. Hey, listen, Julie. So um, on a high note, that was good, but I want to take it even higher. Uh, quick mention, anyone that's on Twitter, uh, I encourage you to go out and uh, find a TED talk by Travis Jones. Just an incredible talk on white privilege. He's at Twitter handle Travis L. Jones, T-R-A-V-I-S-L Jones, um, just the cadence, the the funny, the the message, everything was there. Like I had to look at the joint and I gave the dude a salute, you know, to the computer um, because I mean, I really thought that it was an incredible, incredible delivery. Uh, biggest takeaway from that was to find your voice, to speak up. Uh, and that's the biggest takeaway that I want uh, as we started with the uh, parents in Pennsylvania. Uh, and we're going to end with the very same thing in your workplace. I always say this rule. Number one, find your voice and to speak up. If you struggle with finding the strength, the tenor in your voice, all you have to do is email me. I'll help you. Trust me. I will help you to find your voice. Julie, what's going on for you for the next day, day and a half, rest of the week. Yeah, so I have been on the road for the past 10 days. Um, I'm in Austin right now, but I'm wrapping up and heading home for the next couple of weeks. So I will be all prepped up and ready for our next show. I'm looking forward to seeing my kids and my dogs and just hang out with my husband in our house. But I know you're on the road this week. So what's up with you? Yeah, later today, I'm going to uh, moderate a panel at Smart Recruiters. Um, 
Higher and Success 19 conference. The title of the panel is The Economic Value of Inclusion. Two incredible participants, uh, Nabila Vergi from Dropbox and Ted Prendergast from Red Ventures. And we're going to talk about the economic value of pursuing inclusion. I'm going to flip this conversation away from the traditional business case and to really hit people from an economic standpoint. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. And then next week, I'm going to be rocking with Mr. Craig Fisher uh, down there at TalentNet uh, on the first day of South by Southwest. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting busy with Craig and the rest of the people at the Whole Foods headquarters uh, on next week. And and of course, selfish plug, you can find me on uh, Sirius XM this Sunday, channel 126 at 1 p.m. Uh, my guest this week is Mr. Gene Wadi, the CEO of Diversant. Uh, I want to say it's about a $600 million uh, staff augmentation firm out of New Jersey. So we're going to have a compelling conversation. That sounds pretty awesome. Not a bad week. Hopefully we'll hear about it soon. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap for us, right? Yeah, man. So for anyone who is uh, new to our pod, you can find us on iTunes or Podbean at Crazy and the King, iTunes and Podbean at Crazy and the King. Uh, Of course, this episode dropped on Wednesday, February 27th. And so look at your calendar, set your calendar because the next episode comes out on March 12th. And just as we have been for each and every episode, we will be prepared because we are committed to this work. I say we are ghosts. See ya. Today, our episode was produced by me for the very first time. Our music is by the amazing DJ Master Cells straight out of Baltimore. And you can find Torin and I on social media at Torin Ellis and Julie Sowash. Until next time, see ya. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.